Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart. If you're enjoying this podcast and you'd like to support the reporting behind it, consider a subscription to The Washington Post. With it, you'd get unlimited access to everything we publish. Not only would you be supporting Cape Up, you'd be supporting our reporters working around the world covering and uncovering the next big story. Now, here's something special. Podcast listeners can get one year of unlimited access to The Post for just $29. That's less than $1 a week. Learn more and subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. That's WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. Or click the link in the show notes. Please consider it. And thank you. I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. I know the ugly face of racism. I live racism. I have experienced racism. And I survived racism. That's the United States Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, during a speech at the UN in March to commemorate International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. It serves as the foundation of a remarkable conversation I had with the career diplomat, a black woman who's wide-eyed about how far our nation has to go and uses our ability to tell the truth about our own history to push other nations to confront their own. The conversation with Ambassador Thomas Greenfield covers a lot of ground from Black Lives Matter. I wear proudly my Black Lives Matter t-shirts and hat and was not at all concerned about putting it outside my house because Black lives do matter. To that time when mistaken identity during the Rwandan genocide almost cost her her life. I decided I wanted the young man who was holding the gun in my face to know my name because I thought if he killed me, I want him to always remember Linda. Hear it all right now. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield, thank you very much for coming to the podcast. And Jonathan, thank you for inviting me. So we are speaking on the day that the President of the United States is going to do something I didn't even know was on the radar, and that is to sign the bill into law that makes Juneteenth a federal holiday. And you're going to the White House to be there for the signing. Talk about the significance of this day. Well, first, just getting to this day. So I I was remembering as I heard that the Senate had passed this, and I was shocked because it wasn't on the radar. And I remember the battle that uh, had to be fought to get Martin Luther King's, uh, the Martin Luther King holiday. And so when I heard this, I I, I was a little surprised, and I thought, it can't be true. They can't have passed this. And of course, when it goes to the House, it'll that's when the fight will start. And there was no fight. And uh, it passed. And so it is historic. And um, I'm just amazed. Yeah. I, what surprised me is that it started in the Senate. Yeah. And passed unanimously in the Senate. That's a place where bills usually go to die. But um, you're going to be there at the White House. And you're part of an administration that, quite honestly, has been very forthright very honest um, in dealing with our country's history um, and the uncomfortable truths of our country's history. Uh, As someone who represents the United States 
uh, at the UN. What does it mean to you to have a president and vice president of the United States be so uh, honest about who we are as a country? That's a, a wonderful question to ask me. For me, it's reaffirming. It's confirming of, of who I am and what I know and what I uh, share in terms of my own life story. And you may have heard that I uh, gave a speech at the United Nations on, on, on race and, and racism. And I talked about the uncomfortable truth that uh, we have all lived with our, our entire life. And I was roundly criticized for it. Uh, and um, so this is reaffirming for me. The president outlined four major priorities when he, when he came on board. And one of those priorities is dealing with issues of racial injustice uh, in the United States. So this is just the next uh, step in this president uh, reaffirming for all of us who have lived and experienced uh, this uncomfortable truth, that now we are prepared to deal with it in a more open fashion. So I'm very proud to be associated with this administration. I'm glad you brought up your speech at the UN. Um, it was a speech that you delivered on March 29th. Um, it was a commemorative meeting for International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. And it is, or was, one of the the boldest speeches I have heard on race coming from the UN and from a US official that I've that I've ever heard. Why did you feel before we get into some of the specifics of, of what you said, why did you feel compelled to be um so personal, um, but also so blunt about our uncomfortable tr- America's uncomfortable truths on such a global stage? Well, I am who I am, and that's who I am. Uh, I am a person who ha- I've always uh, confronted uh, the uncomfortable truths wherever I've been. Uh, I started a conversation on race in the State Department uh, several years ago before uh, this became a huge uh, issue. Uh, so for me, it was not anything extraordinary. For me, it's who I am. It's how I work. Uh, And I thought it was a powerful way of addressing these issues for other countries, many of whom deal with the same issues but are not prepared to acknowledge uh, their own truths. And so I wanted to be an example. In fact, you said in in, in your speech, but even though slavery is our original sin, America is not the original source of slavery. Others share this shame with us. Slavery has existed in every corner of the globe. Africans enslaved fellow Africans long before the American colonists existed. And sadly, in many places around the world, slavery exists today. You clearly in that in that paragraph, you wanted to make it clear that while, yeah, I'm the American ambassador to the United Nations talking about, you know, our uncomfortable truths. uh, Hello, world you also have to deal with this. Exactly. And if I don't acknowledge what we have experienced, then I can't point my finger at them for what they are are, are dealing with as well. So I think it was a, a great platform for me 
uh, as the U.S. Uh, permanent representative to, to acknowledge our weaknesses, but also to pat us, ourselves on the back because we have come so far uh, as a nation. And we still have much further to go, but we, we have uh, accomplished a great deal. And the fact of my being there was a huge accomplishment. And you talk about that in your speech. It is in the United States that someone like you, I think you said in the speech, only three generations ago, three generations removed from slavery. Do I have that right? I think that's right. I, I can't count very well, but <laughs> I think it's right. It, it's, it's my great-grandmother who was uh, born in 1865. Wow. Uh, her parents were slaves. And you also talked in the speech about how um, your, your line, how in this country you could go from being the descendant of the, uh, of the enslaved to sitting there before them. Uh, what was the reaction from your colleagues to your speech? Interestingly, I, I got such positive reactions to the speech in New York, and I think it caused some problems for some of our other colleagues who have some of the same issues to deal with, because I talked about our uncomfortable truth, but I also talked about the uncomfortable truth that the uh, Chinese have to deal with in relation to how they have treated Uyghurs. Uh, I talked about uh, the uncomfortable uh, truths that country, other countries who have ethnic tensions have to deal with. So they all were kind of put on notice. Uh, you know, if you're going to criticize us, you need to, I'm, I, I know what our weaknesses are. The, the strength of our country is that we can acknowledge our weaknesses and we can work to correct them. I want to hear how you are working to correct yours uh, before you start to criticize me. Also in, in the speech, um, you said a phrase that in maybe just a year ago would have been really controversial for a, a, a government official to say, but you said in your speech toward near the end of the speech about the protesters, the folks demonstrating in the streets, you, you said, they say that Black Lives Matter because they do. They chant, this is what democracy looks like because it is. This is the American way. Did you have any trepidation whatsoever about even articulating the phrase Black Lives Matter in this context? I do not. Um, I, I wear proudly my Black Lives Matter t-shirts and hat and, and was not at all concerned about putting it outside my house because black lives do matter. Uh, and what most people don't understand for most uh, African-Americans, and I think you talked about that a bit when uh, you spoke uh, uh, recently, that we all experience the George Floyd experience. I have said to everyone, when I saw George Floyd sitting, laying there on that sidewalk, I saw my son and my husband and my brothers and all of my uh, nephews, and it's not the first time I've seen them. I, I saw them when, when um, uh, other uh, African-American men have, have died. And we all know that this is an experience that we could go through. We could be the family of, of, uh, of George Floyd. 
And so for me, Black Lives Matter is not a slogan. It's just a fact. You got criticized by some Republicans for not even using, saying the, the, the phrase Black Lives Matter, but for just giving this speech in its entirety, uh, giving this speech at all, I mean, uh, at the UN, as uh, I think one person said that, you know, this showed that you hate America or, some, or, or something nutty like that. What is your response to um, folks here in the United States who might look at what you said at the UN and and criticize you for what you did, what you said. You know, their, their views are, are their views, and I don't think that I can do or say anything to change those views. But the reality uh, is that I have spent 35 years of my life serving uh, the U.S. government. It's 35 proud years. Uh, I give speeches all the time to young people that say, the proudest moment for me is seeing the American flag fly outside my window, driving up to a building and seeing that flag in a foreign country. Uh, I am as patriotic as any uh, American. I believe in all of our values, and one of our values is truth. And truth has never hurt anyone. You know, when we were uh, little kids, you remember that saying, sticks and stones might break my bones, but talk mm-hmm. don't hurt me. Um, <laughs> remember that? <laughs> yeah, yes. And, and talk is, doesn't hurt. So I'm not hurt by the criticism. Uh, I know my reality. I know my truth. Uh, and I'm going to continue to tell that truth. And it does not in any way diminish my love for this country. Uh, It does not diminish my patriotism. uh, And it does not diminish the contributions that I feel that I have made uh, to this country serving the American people abroad. And you've served the American people abroad on on four continents um, in in various roles, including ambassador to Liberia, um, mm-hmm. appointed by, I believe, President George W. Bush at the tail end yes. of his term, and you stayed until 2012, so through the Obama first term. You said in your speech something interesting, talking about your time. Um, you wrote, you, uh, you said, across four decades and four continents in the Foreign Service, I experienced racism in countless international contexts, from overly zealous searches at airports to police racially profiling my son to being made to wait behind white patrons for a table uh, at a restaurant. In terms of experiencing racism in, in an international context, I mean, you, you're an ambassador, you're a diplomat. Who has the nerve to... <laughs> who has the nerve to look down their nose at you? Well, they don't know in many cases because you don't wear the American flag on your forehead, right? Well, that's so true. So you're just right. you're just another black person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're going to through the airport, you're just uh, another black person. If you're standing in a line, you're just another black person. You're not an American diplomat. And in one case, in one experience, uh, someone said, "Well, you should have told us you were a diplomat." <laughs> and I'm like, "Well, if you had asked, I would have." But that shouldn't matter. I'm a person. 
And, and that's the point, that you shouldn't have to wear some kind of badge to show that you're entitled. You are entitled because you are a person and you deserve dignity and you deserve respect. And that's what racism uh, uh, amounts to. It's, it's, it's showing uh, lack of respect. It's showing hatred uh, toward you for what you can't change. I, I, you know, we can't decide we're not going to be, we're not going to look black. Uh, So it's not even enough, you know, back in the day, you know, to act like you belong because you don't belong because your color is wrong. Ambassador, how do you, this is a personal question here, we could commiserate, um, but how do you deal with those slights? How have you dealt with them? no matter the, the, the context? You know, I don't own them. I, and I've talked about this before. I don't own the slights. They, they, for me, it's about who these people are, not who I am. And I generally try not to get angry because I think in the end, they will always be embarrassed, particularly when they learn who I am. Uh, they will be embarrassed. Uh, and I get a tremendous amount of pleasure out of that embarrassment. <laughs> I laugh because, I, in my own little way, I do the same. Yeah, <laughs> there's just and some so perverse it's like treat me, thrill. treat me right because I'm a person. You know, right. don't treat me right because you know I, I you think I I've earned it. Um, so I that's how I deal with it. I try never to own it. I try never uh, to take it personally. Uh, and I, I move on and I leave people with their own anger and they can deal with their, their, their anger. I'm not going to let it, uh, damage me. If someone stops me from going someplace, I'm like, okay, fine. I'll go someplace else. And I just leave. Uh, and I'll tell you how I learned that actually. Uh, Ambassador Perkins, who was, uh, the first African American ambassador to South Africa. Uh, he was the ambassador to Liberia as well. He was director general of the Foreign Service, and I held that uh, position, and, and uh, he was ambassador to the United Nations. And I think it, it, it's either in his book or he told me, I, I can't remember. Uh, when he was in South Africa, he was invited to this very big reception or event, and this is during apartheid. And he showed up, you know, this very tall, stately uh, African-American man, and uh, he was told, oh, excuse me, you can't come in here. And he said, I was invited. And they're like, no, 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 you can't come in. And he left. And it was later that the government discovered that he had been turned away. And they sent cars to his residence to get him. So he could have made a scene, right? He could have made a horrible scene outside. I am the American ambassador, and I won't allow you to treat me this way. No, he didn't do that. He went home. That was so embarrassing to the government. And so, I, I, you know, I'm just remembering this right now, but maybe that's where I got it from, that you don't own their embarrassment. Don't, don't uh, uh, give them the pleasure of, of disrespecting you. Just let them live with their own issues. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, 
I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but they sent all those cars to get him. Did he go back? Do you know? You know what? I don't remember. Uh, I think he probably did. I'll look it up. And I would have. Oh, you would have. I I would have. Yes, I would have. More evidence that you are a better person than me. Because it would have embarrassed them even more. Now, it's about about who they are, not who you are. So um, that's a story you're telling about uh, about, um, Ambassador Perkins in South Africa. I want you to talk about your experience in Rwanda and an experience that I'm sure 90, 100% of the people listening have not heard, and maybe even 99% of, of folks who might know who you are might not have, ha- have heard. And I only have a snippet of it, but you were there during the Rwanda genocide, and you were held at gunpoint? So I was based in Kenya uh, in a job that was a regional job that covered the Great Lakes region, which it, Rwanda is in. And uh, I was uh, responsible for refugees in the region. So I'd gone to Rwanda, and my uh, memory is uh, failing me completely, but I think I got to Rwanda April 2nd, um, but before April 6th when the genocide started. Uh, So I was there for a couple of days for meetings, and then I was going to go to refugee camps uh, further afield. Uh, The night before, on April uh, 5th, uh, having dinner with uh, uh, colleagues, we heard a loud kaboom, uh, which to me sounded like thunder. Uh, we would later learn very quickly that uh, the pre- president's plane had been shot down and the president of Rwanda and Burundi uh, were killed. And uh, so I went to bed that evening not knowing what I was going to wake up to that morning, and I woke up to the sound of gunfire and the beginnings of a genocide. Uh, and at some point, on that morning, military uh, individuals, they were some of the, um, the uh, genocidaire. Uh, they were looking for uh, a government member by the name of Agath, and I can never pronounce Agath's last name because it's so incredibly long. And um, uh, she lived next door to the, uh, to the deputy ambassador, DCM, Deputy Chief of Missions Home, where I was staying. And she called to say that she was, uh, that her name was on a hit list and could she come over for safety. And we attempted to help her come across a very, very high wall and did not succeed. But the soldiers on the street saw the attempt. And so they came to the house, started banging on the gates and got in. And when they came in, they came bursting into the house looking for a goth and they saw me. And when they saw me, I saw what they saw. They saw her. And I'd never met her before. I didn't know what she looked like. I don't know that I look like her. I've seen one picture of her since. But they didn't know that I was an American diplomat. And uh, to make a long story short, I did. I, I, I was held at gunpoint. Uh, clearly, uh, I, I escaped. It wasn't any kind of amazing escape. They found her. And somebody came in and told them they found her. And they left us alone. And uh, she, she was killed. And I survived. And it was a life-changing experience for me. Mm. 
I mean, I can I can hear it in your voice. And for those who are listening, we're doing this via Zoom, so I can actually see Ambassador uh, uh, Thomas Greenfield as she's telling this this story, finding out that the person they were looking for was slain, and you said it was a, a turning point. A turning point? How? Uh, it was a turning turning point in many different ways. One that I appreciate it. Uh, my own existence a a bit more. Uh, But I also became a bit more bold in my own, uh, in my own way, in terms of how I worked, uh, in terms of how I try to understand people uh, and how I engage it with, uh, with people. And one of the things that I think helped me at the time that I had the, the, um, the gun in my face is, you know, there was a point when I decided I wanted the young man who was holding the gun in my face to know my name because I thought if he killed me, I want him to always remember Linda. Like, I killed this lady, Linda. And so I, I told him my name and I got his name, which I can't remember uh, right now. Uh, and I also kind of struck up a conversation with him and and I use that as an example of why sometimes kindness is important because I do think I struck a, a, a relationship, a nerve in him. Uh, and I didn't think he was trigger happy in, uh, by any means, although he had his finger on the trigger and he could have pulled it at any, any time. Uh, I think I softened him by talking to him and letting him know who, who I was. And I'm not even sure he understood what I was saying because uh, he didn't speak French, nor did he speak English. He, he spoke the language, but he did understand when I did this and said, I'm Linda. How, how long did this whole, your ordeal last? Do you remember? Interestingly, not very long in my uh, mind, maybe two hours. Mm. Uh, but it could have been shorter or it could have been longer. It wasn't hours. Uh, they uh, came through, 25 guys with guns. They searched the house. They ransacked. And then at some point, uh, they got a, uh, a uh, somebody yelled and, and came in to tell them that they'd found her. And, um, and they ran out the door. And it was like, it was like a nightmare that ended. You know, you're sleeping and you're in this terrible nightmare and then suddenly you wake up and that's kind of the way it was. We were in this nightmare and it was over. But at least with a nightmare, you have, once your mind clears, you realize, oh, it was just a dream. But for you, it was a, it was a reality. Yeah, it was a reality. So uh, the woman's trying to get over the, get over the high wall. Agat, I think you said her name, her name was... Yeah. Weren't able to save her. However, you were able to help a group of nuns, if I understand, 29 nuns escape the genocide. I would love to know this story. I don't know that I save them. I help them for sure. By then I had I I was back in Kenya. I was safe in my home with my family, but working on refugee issues and uh, an order of nuns in, um, uh, in Rwanda, one of their 
emissaries of, of their reverend mother uh, came to see me to tell me that these nuns were in their, um, in their home in Batari, which is in uh, Rwanda, and that uh, they were uh, being threatened by their gardener and they needed to get out, but they couldn't cross the border because the border was closed. And so uh, my assistant and I uh, wrote letters and we put them in on this big, beautiful uh, parchment paper. It's, it was a nice beige paper with cloth. You could see the little cloth weaved in. It was really beautiful paper that I think was used in the old days of diplomacy that we didn't use anymore. And we found it in a cabinet. And so we typed out these letters, not on a computer, right? This is 1994, so most people weren't using computers. So my assistant typed each of the letters to whom it may concern, putting this uh, nun's name and uh, saying that they were well and favorably known to the U.S. government and if the government of Burundi would be so kind to allow them to cross the border, uh, we would consider them for resettlement in the United States, which they were not interested in but they needed to their lives saved. So we did up these letters and uh, we printed them out in uh, the envelopes in really nice uh, print, uh, I think calligraphy-like print with their names on the front and put a, a red ribbon on them with the red wax with a seal. So they look really officious and they look beautiful. And so she took them to the border and... Uh, and took them to the government, and these nuns mm-hmm. were allowed in. And uh, so their lives were saved. And uh, the head of the order gave me a, a, uh, a rosary, which uh, my staff knows I don't, go, I don't travel without. Uh, I usually have it on me anytime I get on a plane because for a split second when the guy had the gun in front of me and I thought he was going to pull the trigger— I said a little prayer like, God, I'm not supposed to go this way. Uh, I thought I was going to die in a plane crash. And so then from that moment on, I was a little afraid to fly. <laughs> so, so I always carry my, I always carry my rosary with me on, on, on the, on a plane just in case I'm not Catholic, but you know, God is God. <laughs> so I always have this rosary and, uh, and occasionally I'll forget it. And everybody knows when I don't have it that, we might be in trouble. <laughs> wow. Are you still afraid of flying? I'm still afraid of flying. I, I, uh, I, fly, I fly regularly. I, I have never, ever allowed my fears to keep me from doing what I need to do. And so I've been afraid of flying for years. And it's never, and I've gotten on some scary planes, even in the past few years, I've gotten on some scary planes. And I kind of hang in there, and if I got the rosary at hand, I hold it in my hand and say, not this one, wait, wait until the next one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're, we're laughing, but it is, it is a, it's a joyous laughter uh, and a, 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 laugh, a laughter of relief. Yeah, it is. Bring it back home in the little bit of time that, that we have left. Listening to you talk, and especially how this conversation began about Juneteenth, and uh, certainly about your speech at the UN about discrimination and and racism and Black Lives Matter, wondering, what would you say to those young people who are still, they're still active. A lot of them are still out and protesting 
and I would suspect a year after the murder of George Floyd, are frustrated by the pace of change. You've been in your career now uh, for more than three decades. You have a lot of life experience that they don't. What would you say to them that would buck up their courage or their determination to keep them going? You know, that's a hard one because my generation will always say patience and your generation doesn't, you just don't have that in your, in your system. You're kind to think that I'm part of that generation. (laughs) (laughs) You are. Uh, So I can't say patience, even though I would think that. So I would say, don't give up. Don't give up. Because even as we, I mean, when we look at what they have accomplished, even in the past year, it is extraordinary. I mean, I never thought Juneteenth would matter. In fact, I I will tell you, I'd never even heard of it until I moved to D.C. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I grew up in Louisiana. And I went to black schools. All of my teachers were, were black. I don't think they ever heard of it. Because our, our history and our life experiences are, are kept from us. It's not in anybody's history book. So if it's not in your history books and your, your relatives don't know about it, then you don't learn. Uh, my nephew sent me uh, a message, you know, congratulating me on Juneteenth. And he sends me a picture of himself as a one-year-old. He's about 30 now. And he's a one-year-old in a dashiki saying, I bet you, nev- you don't have a picture of yourself in a dashiki at one on Ju- uh, celebrating Juneteenth. And I went back to him and said, I don't have a picture of myself at one. And I didn't know what Juneteenth was until I was in my late 20s. And the fact that he he knew at a year old uh, was was extraordinary. But I didn't. So these young people accomplished this for for us. And I just, my, my message to them is just don't give up. Keep pushing. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the 31st United States Ambassador to the United Nations. This has been a thrill. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Jonathan, thank you so much. And now every time I see you on TV, I'm going to smile. I always did, but I'm going to smile wider. (laughs) Thank you. You make us proud too, by the way. Before I go, let me introduce you to a new podcast from Washington Post Opinions, It's called Please Go On, hosted by Post columnist James Homan. Every Friday, James interviews someone who's written an insightful or important op-ed for The Post. His first guest? Vice President Kamala Harris. You might remember James if you listened to his previous show, The Daily 202's Big Idea. A nice compliment to what we're doing here on K-Pop. Please Go On creates a space for guest authors to go deeper on what they've written. I know you'll like it. Check it out. You can find Please Go On with James Homan wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks.